whole and free. And I'm hoping that this platform will be a way to achieve that. Who you be, Trina? Well, as my bio says on the profile, I'm a sometimey DJ who has an insatiable need for rhythm and repetition. But who am I? Um, I'm a native Georgian. I am an imam. I am a co-host for this podcast. I am a doctoral student who's studying social foundations and in educational policy, and in particular, its implications for the intersections of critical race theory, the black radical tradition, and womanist theology. I'm a farmer, and I have lots and lots of animals in my life, and lots of lots, lots and lots of fresh food. I am a queer, black, Muslim woman getting my life in this world. It's out here killing the game. That's what you're doing. Well, thank you. Who are you, Sharifa Jackson? Um, I'm many things, yeah. Shame enthusiast, uh, former youth wrangler, writer, music lover, cancer survivor, uh, just a creative. Mm-hmm. So, and using all of those avenues has brought me here to be in this space to do the work. Because that is super important to me of doing the work and having conversations that matter. So I get to do that here in the space through deliberative dialogue and through connecting with dope people. So, you know, I am. Thank you. Thank you. You're my partner in the miracle liberation. <laughs> I receive that. So what is I'm Sorry, Ms. Jackson? Other than a great song made by one of the best hip-hop duos of our time, the track, of course, is called Miss Jackson, and it, it is our namesake, but we are a podcast, and the goal here is to try to create the ultimate mixtape to take us towards liberation. Yeah, I'm sorry, Miss Jackson is an extension of the conversations that we've been having for more than a year, right? We started off as a writing group. And my spouse accused us of not writing very much, <laughs> but talking a lot. And there's some truth to that, but I think that I always look forward to our weekly writing group because it instigated lots of writing for me after our group because of the conversations that we've had. Um, I came as a guest on your other podcast, This Can Change, last February, maybe? Oh, and, uh, yeah, it really does. And so we had a conversation on the podcast. We had so much fun. And then we were meeting on a regular basis for our writing group. And we did get some writing done, but I think that a lot of what I left with and what you left with were notes around um, some of the comments we made to each other and talking about politics, talking about religion and faith, talking about love, talking about cancel culture. And we had lots of notes about what do we do with these conversations, and I think that we kind of mutually came to the place of let's open this conversation up and share it with other people and let other people just listen to us have a good time together, musing and and ciphering together, and invite guests into that conversation so that we can broaden it and widen it. And so here we are in a podcast opening up our dinner table to other people, because that's that's what we were talking most of the time at our dinner table. And saying, what do you think? Like, not necessarily let's solve this puzzle, 
That'd be great if we can, but let's get some more perspectives on what's happening here and how do we move forward together in the best ways possible. I'm so appreciative of you bringing up this process that we've kind of gone through because it's been very organic and being able to sit down on a weekly basis and just vibe certainly has transformed the way that I look at the culture as a whole. You mentioned being at the dinner table and I want to raise up the Sankofa dinner that we had. That experience in itself of looking back and kind of blinking in and honoring our ancestors and doing so through music, again, was very transformational for me on many levels. In a way, we're bringing that here in this space. We're connecting a love of music. You don't have to be a professor. You don't you don't have to uh, have any sort of claim to connect over the music. And for black folk, that's our culture. That's our thing. It is it is in our DNA to have a song. It moves us. And so to work on this project together, I'm really honored to do that. It really has been this organic piece of us just wrestling with things. Ideally, we should all sit down and have these conversations that matter, but not everyone has a person or a place to actually do that. So, again, I honor that we both were able to have this time. That's another part of it, too, making time to have these conversations. It's not always easy to do. Well, you know, I think that this part of the intellectual and emotional growth of what became this podcast, I'm sorry, Ms. Jackson, a miracle analysis of faith, love, apology, culture, and the movement is also, yes, about our love for music. Both of our last names is also Jackson, right? And so there, that made it feel feel good. We were talking about outcasts at some point around the table in that song. And, you know, when, when I was a teacher, I, my students made opportunities to say to me, I'm sorry, Ms. Jackson. And so both of us, you know, have worked with youth and who were coming through when that song was still really popular and really, um, in the atmosphere, and and so we both gravitated towards the title because we hold that surname in common, but also what we hold in common is analysis, right? What does it mean? Uh, what can it mean? Um, and what is there? You know, what is already there and what can we draw out of it? Like it's making me think of the story of Moses in the Hebrew Bible, that his name means to draw out, right? Because in his story, mother and his sister are like, oh my goodness, we got to get, got to hide this baby boy because the Egyptians are going to kill him. So they put him in the river. And in this story, depending on which ones you follow, the apocryphal stories, the Pharaoh's daughter or wife draws him out of the water. And his sister sets up a situation so that this wealthy person will hear this baby crying, will be moved with compassion and draw them out. And I think that part of what we're doing is trying to send a crying baby down the river so that people who have the ears to hear will draw it out. Yeah, I, I do feel like we're trying to draw it out. And in doing so, we're asking important questions around liberation and more so um, imagining what liberation looks like. I don't think I actually took time to do that before you and I began to have these conversations around the topic. We'd like to take this moment 
to throw it back at you and ask you, what does liberation look like for you? Well, you know, I mean, this is the crux of so much of the work that I do is is imagining liberation from so many different angles. This is the, the essence of Afrofuturism. And so I ask other people that question on a regular basis. And one of the, one time when I asked some folks, I got two answers. I was having dinner with some friends. And one of them says that liberation to them looks like eating cheesecake, right? Because they're lactose intolerant and they feel like their, their health, like that inability to enjoy milky things has been compromised by, in some ways, oppression, but by the stress of of living in the world as a black person and they're organizers and they're always kind of on this, in this work, even in their dreams, you know, they're, they're dreaming about organizing, dreaming about doing the work, the content that's being in the legacy of Harriet Tubman, even in our downtime. And so she said that her, through her liberation, the feeling of liberation for her would be able to enjoy delicious things to eat that don't hurt her. Someone else told me that in order to enjoy liberation, it would mean doing cartwheels, because they could do those when they were younger. But again, they have, if there has been a march, this person has been there, right? If there has been something in the street to do, this person has been there. Now they're in their 40s, and they're just like, my knees, my knees. And they're like, I wish I could be in a place where I could do cartwheels again. And, and you know, we could talk about biologically and chronologically what happens as we age. But what I realized when we were having that conversation, my two friends who had just said these limitations in my life were causing me to lack the liberation I dream of. And what they gave to each other, the one who said my knees hurt, they said to the person who wished I could have cheesecake, they said, you know that at Publix, there's a dairy-free cheesecake that tastes really good. You can't even tell it's not dairy-free, right? And the other person says, you know what? I know where there is a pool and you can do cartwheels all day, any day you want to. There is a free and open pool for our people. And you can go turn flips there and do cartwheels all you want to, and it won't cause an impact on your knees. And so they they exchanged that freedom with each other and said, I have a piece of the puzzle for you. You have a piece of the puzzle for me. And for me, that is our practicing of liberation. It's not one thing. It's not one definition or one destination. It is freedom is a practice. Angela Davis has the book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, but it's an old gospel song, you know, mm-hmm. um, that freedom is a constant struggle. And the, the end of that refrain is, we must be free. We must, like, I've been struggling for so long. I've been struggling so long, for so long. We must be free. We must be free by now, right? But I think that liberation is a constant struggle, but it's also a constant practice, right? We're always figuring out in the moment, what is liberation? Is, is this liberating? And so I think that we have to be careful not to kind of place it in this in this framework where it is one thing, but it is mutual. It is many things. It is a living organism within a larger, and I won't even say within a larger ecosystem. Freedom is the ecosystem. What does liberation look like to you? Whether it's cartwheels or cheesecake, we'd love to know your answer to this question. So... Share with us at ISMJ Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Now let's get back to it. You know, we talk about liberation. This is your question of asking, how do we get free? I think what we're doing here and having these conversations, I don't think it's the solution, but I definitely think it's helping build a path towards it. 
continuing me to think about I'm fine Miss Jackson's podcast. I'm I'm thinking about the yellow brick road in a sense, like brick by brick. Here here's here's the path we take towards freedom. But we didn't talk about this dope ass song <laughs> Jackson by Outcast, Big Boy and Dre, Andre three thousand and uh their old Get back with your daughter, and that's not going to happen. 
I think that, again, we were talking earlier before we were recording about the idea of the contronyms of, say, words like bad and the words like left and how contronyms are very, um, very much present in African-American vernacular English. And I think that they actually did this. I can't remember when this song came out. Like, oh, 2000. Wow. So it was, yeah, it was 20 years ago. So I think that the, in the contronym that Outcast is saying, I'm sorry, a bad thing happened, people got hurt, I am sorry, Miss Jackson. This didn't work out. Mm-hmm. But the contronym is also saying, I am a sorry, no good nigga, that you, that, and there's nothing I can do to change your mind. Like, I'm showing up, I'm saying I'm sorry, I'm admitting that I have fault here. And in your mind, Miss Jackson, I will only be a sorry person. And so I am resigned to being that, and I'm not gonna, I'm gonna stop trying to sh- change your mind. You, you're saying I'm sorry, but at the same time, it is having enough forethought to know that easily could have said, let's be together. We have this kid, right? But understanding that the relationship itself could be considered toxic. Like, if we focus on the kid, they're actually doing that child a favor by not pushing this this relationship. But we look at it from a generational standpoint. I don't know about you, but I was just taught you're supposed to you're supposed to get married. It's that southern thing, right? I, I feel like, I really feel like it's part of southern culture. Have this relationship, yeah, get married, and then then you have this child, right? That's not happening. Yeah, it didn't happen. You know, she's not the one. And now we ha- we have this kid, which ideally we're looking at as a blessing. Miss Jackson is like, ah, not only not only have you like dishonored my my daughter, right? You an ancient ass individual. <laughs> you know, fuck it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. We're gonna be in a relationship, and it's just it's two miserable people. And then instead of making the kid miserable, then you have more kids. <laughs> Right? You know, doing the thing that got you in this situation anyway. Might as well. <laughs> Might as well. Because let me have another side of it. Andre is talking about love. Miss Jackson, from Andre's side of it, was Erica Badu's mother. Because he and Erica Badu uh, had a son together. He, he, he speaks of genuinely being in love. He refers to puppy love. You say it's puppy love, I say it's full of love. Mm-hmm. So, from the standpoint of really relating what love looks like, some of us believe that love is supposed to be for a lifetime. You're, you're fed this, this narrative that like, love is for a lifetime. Like, you fall in love with someone, it's supposed to be forever. <laughs> in this case, that wasn't so. With that, he's coming from a place of love, like legitimately. And from that, we had this baby, and it didn't work out. And I love that he even brings up praying about it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I prayed so much, I had to get some knee pads. <laughs> Intertwining that love and faith component there, saying, like, man, like, I, I, I prayed about this thing. It's 20 years later, and I do recognize that, in a way, it is kind of out, something about outcasts. And who they are and what they represent for us, um, it's just magical. Yeah. Yeah. I think that they cultivated a unique way to buck respectability politics. I think that they were able to, to, to push some conversations and push some ways of thinking in, in ways that other people didn't have access to or that other people weren't trying to do. I think they were, they were real artists, like the whole, 
Dungeon Collective here in, in Atlanta, really the Atlanta mm-hmm. artist yeah. sound has been doing some some really important stuff in that era of hip hop in the world. This song in particular, I can think of a, a few other ones when they're pushing at respectability politics. So fresh and so clean is another yes. one, you know. And but this in this song, they're saying that they refuse to bow down to the respectability politics of, of a previous generation. That did, who told us similar to you said to what you said this this is the path you walk if you you have a baby with somebody you need to marry them and y'all need to be miserable together and make more miserable people and they're like no we're not we're not going to do that and it's and it's an act of resistance to say mm-hmm. we're not going to do that when the elders are saying this is this is what you must do this is how you must perform based on your actions and 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 they're not excusing themselves to say we haven't made mistakes and I don't know that sex is the mistake there I think that that harm was caused in some way in relationships which we harm each other in relationships and they're trying to make amends without without demeaning themselves and some older generations this is exactly the conversation that we're having in the movement with older generations who are telling us that there are legitimate and illegitimate ways to protest and holding their respect and their and their sense of respectability as the leverage point to say if you if you don't do it like people did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and your your resistance is not legitimate. And we, first of all, we know that there were particular ways of protesting that was that were legitimized and delegitimized in the civil rights movement as well. Um, and they tended to fall along certain kind of philosophical lines that benefited mostly people who already had resources or had some proximity to white wealth and acceptance. And so now we have come to a place in the movement to say we don't need your respectability politics and while we can learn lessons from the past you need to come along with us where we're going because the reality is we are closer to the future than you are what's your favorite outcast album right now we're highlighting stick on you because of miss jackson personally i'm torn between equimini and the dual album speaker box the love below hit us up at ismj podcast on facebook ig and twitter all right let's get back to it you know you and i discussed this and you brought up a really great point about the the settings of the video and making the correlation between in the entire video, they're actually battling the rain. Like they're trying to, they're trying to catch all the, the water that's coming into the home, and eventually the roof actually crashes in on them. Hearing you talk about this, especially in raising the, the the line of like you can plan a pretty picnic, but you can't predict the weather. And that rain is so true with what's happening now, specifically with the movement and social unrest and how people are expressing themselves. We can plan a pretty picnic, but we cannot predict the weather here. There's so many elements involved. Yeah. And, the, you know, I think the unpredictability, too. I think that part of what makes people uneasy about social movements broadly, but about this character of social movements when it's coming from, generally speaking, younger people, young black folks who are often marginalized in other ways beyond their youth and marginalized by class, marginalized in their sexual and gender sexual identities and gender expression, is there's a certain unpredictability of what's gonna happen next. Um, and people want to know where who's in charge, where are we going, what are we gonna do? And it's not because people aren't strategizing. 
Um, but I think there's an openness because again, this this expression of the movement is deeply rooted in spirituality. Is I can't tell you what the spirit is going to do. I can do things that are conducive to the spirit. <laughs> I can do things that welcome the spirit. I can do things that you know that that can I can ask and and supplicate the spirit. But I can't tell you what the spirit's going to do. And this movement is for people who are willing to live in that dynamism, and people who are willing to move as the spirit moves and and and, and go with a lot of the flow. And know that, and trust that we're going in a good and liberating direction. And so I think that this is, this throws a lot of folks off. Because even in the video, you know, like you said, they're trying to catch the rain and they're, they're battling the rain. And in the end, the roof falls in and, and they just kind of bask in the glow of, of really, uh, what looks like to be a sunny sky coming through while the rain is still dripping, uh, through the roof. And they're like, there's some inevitability about the transformation that they have a new outlook on the rain. Like, they have a new outlook on this thing that, that was, that they were running themselves ragged to control. They were trying to rein it in. They were trying to contain it. They were trying, and that's exactly what's happening, you know, with, with, with police and establishment. They're trying to contain us with the National Guard. They're trying to rein us in, put up these, these boundaries so we can only go to this street and not that street. But there's some un, there's some inevitability that the rain will be everywhere, and so we just have to appreciate that freedom will rain down on us as much as they try to contain our freedom, contain our speech, contain how we resist and say we want our liberation, we want to be free. At some point, freedom will break through. Please go ahead and press that like button, show us some love, give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to us on. We appreciate you. Again, we can't do this on our own. We need right. you guys. Tell your friends. And mom, though, because, you know, uh, if the, the co-workers that you, you're sitting on these remote meetings with and you really, you really not paying attention, but you cool with one of them, go ahead and send them a message that has a link to our podcast and I check them out. Right. Tell your enemies. We don't mind. The ultimate goal is freedom. We can't do it alone. What does it mean if, if I feel, if I personally feel free and my brother, my sister, my, my friend, my fellow human being isn't free? It's, a, it's an illusion that there is no such thing as me being free and you not being free. Fanny Luhamer was very clear about that. <laughs> We've had other folks come along and, and like I feel like she said it very well so I want to give her credit for that but I, I, I think that people have recognized that our, our mutual liberations our freedoms are tied together if if one person is not free none of us are completely free none so it's just an illusion when other people when, we, when other people say they want freedom over and against somebody else's freedom as if they're, we're in a system of scarcity that if you get freedom I can't have it that's not that's not how freedom works that's not how love works that's not you know that there's not enough freedom in the universe for all of us and so it's a false dichotomy to set that up and say if you have if, if I have freedom you can't have it no you're right I mean we really do operate from a point of scarcity I wonder what it looks like if we actually start standing in abundance and believing because we do know there is enough yeah there's enough I think it's 
absolutely ridiculous for us to be in a time where there is anyone that's homeless. We have the buildings, right? Right. There are places, there are spaces for people to be housed, but we choose to let them sleep on the street. You know, Rayshard Brooks got murdered by the police a few weeks ago here in Atlanta, and and people have been responding in lots of different ways as the protests are ongoing. But what I really loved was on the 4th of July is when a lot of folks came together in the city and built the Rayshard Brooks Peace Center in Southwest, right in front of the Wendy's where he got killed. And so that happened on the same weekend that there were a lot of shootings and killings in Atlanta. And so the thing that the police did, that APB, who's been sitting it out for the last two weeks in protest, got their shit together in order to come and tear down the Peace Center. Part of the Peace Center was garden was tiny houses that the community had built for people who were experiencing homelessness. And my question is, what is gained APD? What is gained Keisha Lance Bottoms, mayor of Atlanta? What is gained by taking homes away from people who were unhoused prior to that? Like, it has been in the, the hands of the city to help eliminate or at least reduce the amount of people who are experiencing homelessness in this city. And that's not to say that there hasn't, work hasn't been done. Community members came together and built some tiny houses for people in the area. And what is gained APD? What is gained city council by tearing those places down? What about giving someone shelter is so egregious to their idea of freedom and law and order that they would literally rip food from the ground, literally kick people out of homes at a peace center? But they're telling us that we're the ones who are out of order. That we're the ones who are acting lawless. And they just destroyed it. They didn't give it to somebody else. They just destroyed it. Destruction for the for the sake of intimidation. I'm sitting here and I am thinking about the beauty in the work that has gone forth at this site. I had the opportunity to be present uh, the day after Richard Brooks was unjustly killed. And I, I experienced the hostility and the hurt in the crowd, in the community, and the people present that day. And one, I can honestly say, and it's not, it's not a knock to the police, it's true. Uh, the people who lived in that community did more policing that day than the hundreds of police officers that were present in that space. And on the other side of this, I'm also thinking about what the area has turned into. A lot of negativity is coming out of that space. And so I'm glad that you raised up uh, the, the housing, the gardens, the peace that's being pushed forward there. I'm at the same time, I have to raise up the name of Sincoria Turner. That hurts. Yeah. An eight-year-old, one of our babies, to lose her life, again, unjustly, and from gun violence. You know, I think that the difference between Sincoria being shot and Rashad being shot is that Rashad's death was, yes, individual to individual, but also part of a, a system in which black life is devalued. And so it's not just Rashad as an individual. It is an ongoing systemic danger coming from police 
who over-police and use excessive force against black people. For Sincoria, there is no system of black people trying to kill black children. Right? There's no there's no larger structure of targeting black children. And so while her death is horrible and 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 egregious, within black communities, we have already been doing the work for many decades. This is I think is difficult when I hear people talk about black on black crime as if white on white crime is also not eighty five percent of the people who harm white people is other white people, that we have years and years of black people in black communities disarming black folks who have guns, um, trying to change the community so that people don't feel like they need guns, trying to get truces on accords between gangs who, who perpetrate gang violence. And these aren't the things that we that we hear about or talk about or get or see in policy that black folks within our own communities, within our own households, have been combating black-on-black violence since there were black communities, right? And and we still fail. Like, we still have an enormous amount, just like other communities, of, of intimate partner violence. We don't talk enough about the sexual abuse of children, especially childhood molestation. We don't talk enough about violence between people with, who are the same gender or between uh, multiple genders. But we are having those conversations. And I think what happened with Sincoria, again, is something that's not a part of a larger system. And it, it becomes, again, a false equivalency to say that their deaths are the same. Now, are both they both people? Are they both worthy? Yes. They're both people whose lives are worth being defended. So in the midst of this movement and in the midst of the legacy of black resistance to state violence, we have coded Rashard's death as an example of state violence against, against black bodies. We have not coded Sincoria's death as evidence of state violence against black people. Now, it's, it's arguable that it is, that, you know, this is a, the conversation that a lot of people have as we talk about abolition and we talk about systemic racism, that you take a community and deprive it of resources, deprive it of any kind of investment, deprive it of people of the ability to have legitimate and, and legal employment, the, the private of, of good education, the private of the opportunity just to get fresh groceries, and you will see people will turn to criminalized behaviors, right? Because people will say, oh, well, there's not this much crime in predominantly white, wealthy communities. Well, there are lots more resources, right? Mm-hmm. Right? There's not as, as much police patrol, right? And so you don't have as, as much engagement with police. And so I'm not in any way trying to defend black folks killing black folks, but I think that, that we have boosted Rashard to be a symbol of something something larger and systemic in a way that we haven't with Sincoria. And I think that's based on how they died. Like, Rashard dying was not a mistake. Sincoria dying was a mistake, right? The officer intended to kill him. Sincoria died from a stray bullet. Still not le- any less tragic. And so I think that, that to try to hold those conversations get the hold those conversations as, as equal, hold their deaths as equal in circumstances is is it's disingenuous, I think. Um and I think that that's what a lot of the black leadership has tried to do in this city. And it's disingenuous. Um I'm and I'm saying Keisha Lance Bottom, <laughs> like because she has used this opportunity to, to escalate police presence in black communities. Over policing majority black communities, working class and poor black communities, it's not preventing crime. 
Like, they show up after a crime has been reported, but they're not preventing crime. So saying that there should be more police in that neighborhood would not have kept Sincoria from getting killed. But the authorities of Atlanta have used this opportunity. Strangely, they did not use they've used this opportunity to increase police presence and to give more money to police in, a, in APD, but they didn't use the opportunity of Rashad's death to retrain police, to take some money from them, to defund them, to change something about what they So why does one catalyze more money to police and one doesn't subtract money from police? Well, here's the thing. And you and I know this, and those listening, um, I, I believe they will understand this as well. You know, what claims better to the media? Well, the stereotype of the natural criminality of black people, I think that this plays very well, that Sincoria's death plays very well for a media that's not interested in decriminalizing black people. We have some other episodes lined up, and I'm excited to get feedback from other folks on Patreon and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook when they hear some of the conversations that we've been having with folks. And, and I hope that we can garner even more awesome guests as we make this path together and, and really chop it out. You mentioned defunding the police and had an opportunity to uh, go to a peaceful demonstration recently, uh, which was in front of the new and upcoming police precinct off of Cleveland Avenue Metropolitan. And that experience for me, which I'm still processing, but the people of that community asked some hard-hitting questions, questions that need to be asked. Because the new building, the new precinct, it looks fantastic. It's quite nice, actually. Very uh, modern, very uh, upscale. However, when you look to the left, you look to the right, and all around, nothing else in that neighborhood reflects this building and what it represents. It's, it's actually run down. Clearly, funding hasn't been put into preventing food scarcity and for that area being a food desert. So citizens showed up and asked the question, where are we getting the money? And why isn't it being invested into the people rather than investing it into the police? So by putting a higher police presence in this area, how will it impact the, the children that are growing up there? What would their lives look like? Because I personally don't think it's going to be any better. Because if you're already labeled as a criminal, your 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 skin it is to signify that you're a criminal. We've been taught and we know what our relationship as black folks, as black people, what that relationship looks like. I don't know what the goal is here for them to put funding into this building in this way. I'd be hopeful. I'm hopeful about a lot of things, but as it stands, I don't believe it's there to help them. In fact, I do believe it's going to be a hindrance. I think that that's, that you're exactly right. This building reminds me of a conversation I had with a student when I was teaching high school science. And I mean, I was teaching at a school in Southeast Atlanta. And generally speaking, the students were, were from working class and poor households and backgrounds, right? 98% of the kids were eligible for free and reduced lunch. It's probably 98 to 99% black students. And in the winter, it's very cold in our, in, in, in our school, in my classroom. And so kids would be there in their blankets and, and in their, uh, if they had coats in their little coats kind of huddled together while I'm trying to, you know, teach chemistry. And when it rains, it rained inside our building. 
random thought out school. And I remember having a conversation with a student, I think, that he's probably a sophomore at that time. As we were watching the custodial staff position trash cans in the hall, it was like a lunchtime or something, and the custodial staff were positioning trash cans to catch the water that was coming through the ceiling and also the rat shit that was up there um, that was coming down. And he asked me, Ms. Jackson, why are you here? Like, why why are you teaching here? Like, they always want to know, like, your background, where you come from. And I'm like, you know, I love y'all. I think science is important. I want to share the thing that I love. I love science. You know, I want to share that with y'all. I think it could be useful for your life. But he's like, no, why are you here in this building? You could teach somewhere else. Because look at this building. Nobody cares about us. This conversation came about because I've been gone for a little while because I was sick and it took me some time to recover. And they was like the rumor had spread that I was never coming back. And so he said, why are you here? Why did you come back? We didn't think you were going to come back. And I was like, I came back because I love y'all. I love science. And he's like, look at this school. They don't love us. Like, nobody loves us. Look at our books. Everybody in the class will have one, but we can never take our books home. Right? We had, we live in a place where there's rat shit in the ceiling. They were like a family of wasps living in the ceiling also. And when it rains, it rains in here. Everything around here is falling apart. This is all I need to know about how what people think of me. And so when I you talk about that new precinct being upscale and beautiful and then everything around it is is not well taken care of, I'm clear that kids will look at their structural environment, the built environment or the grown environment, like the, the physical environment we live in. When it communicates to the kids in Southwest with that beautiful, swanky police precinct, is this is what is most important here. This is, deserves to have resources poured into it. So when even if no one says that directly, you have a building that is well-maintained around buildings that aren't well-maintained. So the so people who are walking there get the subliminal message that this is important and these and these, uh, these other things are not. You also get the, the message that we need to spend money containing you people, that that is where the money needs to go for this community, for people who will help to control you, not for your stores, not for your homes, not for your street and your environment. It is so we can make sure that you are well-controlled. And so I think that we forget sometimes as adults, you know, we, we're able to put things in the background of our minds a lot of times, but I think that it still impacts us. But kids are very aware of their environment in, in a way that, I, like, you know, I live on a farm in a way I think that my animals are very aware of the direct the environment directly around them and what it's telling them. And that precinct tells kids that this is where the government said, this is what's important, so we will spend money on it. Your house is not important to us. Being able to access fresh food is not important to us. Like being able to give you a, 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 a safe and well-maintained place to live is not important to us. Being able to give you more than adequate education is not important to us. What's important to us is that you can be policed right near your home. That's what's important. And so that is a, an example of structural violence toward these communities. To say we will spend money on this, but not invest in you. We will invest in containing you. We will not invest in you. It reminds me of the study of how prisons, corporations, actually look at third graders in certain areas, specifically focusing on um, people of color and using that to project how many beds they need to have in prisons. What happens when we put that money, which you're spending on a study, what happens if we put that money into the school systems, into the surrounding areas, to actually improve their way of life? And we know how 
we can profit from prisons, but who profits from educated black folks? Thank you for listening to I'm Sorry Miss Jackson podcast, a lyrical analysis of love, faith, apology, culture, and the movement. I'm Sharita J. Trina, why don't you tell them how they can keep up with us? You can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us on Patreon. Please patronize us on Patreon. You can look us up at ISMJ Podcast on Patreon, Instagram, and Twitter. And Facebook, please support the movement. Support it.